This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Kyle, Zach, what's up, man? Welcome back. We have another amazing Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Feels like it's been a minute since our last one. I think Lee Winchester was our, our last one last month. This one is going to be badass because we have our favorite Welshman back on the call, Luke Hughes. I was going to come up with a nickname. Oh, Hugh, Luke Drake, Drake Hughes. He's been called the Drake, Drake. of blood flow restriction. Yeah. Um, the, he puts Shout out to white. Brian Goonan for that nickname. Yeah, yeah. He's the whitest Drake you've ever seen in your life. Man. <laughs> so anyways, all the way from Wells, it's nighttime there. He's about to have some football here in a minute. Okay, let's get into this real quick, though, Luke. Football. Oh, hey, guys. Do you? Hey, sorry, Luke. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys. I was waiting for Luke to pop in with an "In My Feelings" dance, like out the car, like they do. You know. So, Luke, Luke, Ted Lasso. You guys love it or not? Over there. What do you guys? Uh, yeah, it's quite an interesting watch, to be honest. I'm really? A few, a few episodes in, yeah, but fortunately, we don't have anyone like that coaching us at football. And hey, Johnny, right. I thought I was, I thought I was your only Welshman as well. What do you mean the favourite Welshman? <laughs> I thought I was the only Welshman. We got to leave well, room for future Luke. I mean, we're, we're thinking long term here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Zeta Jones, I guess that's our my favourite Welsh Welsh person. And then you're next. Oh, did you know? Man. Did you know I'm I'm Welsh? That's my my family history. I mean, I'm Texan, but I did the the stupid ancestry thing for a Christmas gift. So you know, now they have my DNA like all over the freaking like internet, and <laughs> yeah. can never kill anyone because you know my DNA is out there everywhere. But uh, it came back, and it's <laughs> almost 100% Welsh, Luke. Wow. Yeah. Very yeah. privileged. Very, very lucky. I didn't know Jay Z was Welsh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you Google, if you Google my name, which not that I do that or anything that much, but if you Google it, it, it just goes to the IMDb It used to be, I was third. So it was this, this commercial real estate, Johnny Owens in Oklahoma. And then I was in third behind him. I whooped his ass now. So he's way down and I'm number two. You know, who's number one, a Welsh boxer named Johnny Owens who who died um in a fight he had like one loss and he died and so i, I look up this guy's story to try and because he you know apparently do you know him luke is he famous over there johnny owens the boxer no i did not know him before that's the first i've heard of it you, you fake ass welshman <laughs> he's, he's a hero oh, over hang there. On. come on hang luke i've just i've just googled this and he died 12 years before i was born so that's probably why He's yeah, old you gotta school. keep up with your history. You see the picture like of that guy? A Look at the, the freaking ears on that guy. They're huge. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked up his background. Listen to this of how he died. This is on Wikipedia. So you know it's true. This is when he got to the hospital after he took the punch to the chin. The neurosurgeon in charge of Owens revealed how they discovered that Owens possessed both an unusually delicate skull and a strong jaw. How, like, how the hell did they figure, you know, like he's got, is that a thing, Luke? You guys have delicate skulls? Uh, we're just a, we're just a delicate race in general, I think. <laughs> and so, as a result, Pintor's punch inadvertently pushed Owen's jawbone through the back of his skull into his brain. I mean, Jesus <laughs> Christ! <laughs> Jesus, anyway, that's, uh, that's my that's my ancestry. That's uh, that's very depressing. Hopefully, we can yeah. boost you up to number one, Johnny, so people don't have to read that. Twelve years ago, the guy with the with the weak skull, and he still beat me out. We'll get so here. Luke, you might need to wear like a face mask or something to play soccer. Then, mm -hmm. if you know, it's, it's football. 
Oh, football. I'm, I'm football. sorry. Football. Thanks, Zach. You took the words right out of my mouth. Football. <laughs> All right, so we got that that matters to us is the Oklahoma Texas game next week when when we get to talk trash to Jeremy Linicky once. Yeah, my wife wants to have a garage sale next Saturday. I was like, you're you're kidding me, right? No way. So, anyways, we're having Luke back on. Um, You know, he's a good friend of ours and and been on the podcast before because he's got a new paper out. Um, Is is it actually out yet, Luke? Yes, it's out. uh, It's in press on Journal of Applied Physiology website. Yeah. Okay, German Applied Physiology. Um, if you remember our other podcasts or just know the BFR literature, Luke's kind of leading the charge here of trying to, to figure out what the mechanisms are for blood flow restriction and the potential uh, pain relief and benefits, the analgesia of it. And so the title of this one is Aerobic Exercise with Blood Flow Restriction Causes Local and Systemic Hypoalgesia and Increasing Circulating Opioid endo- Endocannabinoid Levels. Um, so I kind of butchered that, but it's building on what Luke looked at in the past was that if you do blood flow restriction resistance exercise, um, especially at a higher pressure in the lower extremities, so 80% limb occlusion pressure, they saw a pretty nice reduction in pain in healthy individuals as well as a systemic um, or remote effects. So they had pain in, in the upper trapezius, even though they did it on the leg, they had a 24 hour effect. Um, if you did BFR, uh, I think I'm getting it all right. So this was kind of a repeat of that same kind of trial to see if aerobic exercise carried the same benefits. Was that, is that pretty accurate there, Luke? Yeah. Johnny basically just bang on. Cast over. We good? Okay. Yeah. So uh, thanks, okay. Luke. We'll see you later. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. <laughs> uh, be sure and Cheers, guys. Watch old videos of Johnny Owens boxing. Um, so anyways, Luke, you want to go into what your, your design was here and what your thoughts were here? Yeah, thanks, Johnny. And it was a nice overview to start with. So as you said, we basically um, followed on from the previous paper in Journal of Applied Physiology where we looked at resistance exercise. Um, and we decided to look at, you know, does the same thing happen with aerobic exercise? So we designed a, a similar study, like a randomized crossover um, trial, where we had four different exercise conditions. So they were all, all, all cycling exercise. The individual cycled for 20 minutes. Um, and we, can, we based that off one of Jeremy Lonicky's training studies, actually, where they compared BFR cycling versus high-intensity cycling over six weeks. So we took a protocol that had been shown to be effective for improving muscle size and strength with aerobic exercise. And we thought, right, can it have an impact on pain for individuals as well? So... Four different exercise conditions. So it was low intensity aerobic exercise and the intensity was set at 40% of their VO2 max. So we did, we did all the assessments beforehand so we could prescribe the intensity. And then there was two other, so that was the first one. There was two BFR conditions. So they also performed cycling at 40% of VO2 max. Um, in one of the sessions, it was done with BFR at 40% of LOP. And in the other session, it was BFR at 80% LOP. So <clears throat> we were trying to capture that, that, that what we think is that effective range of BFR pressures within the literature. And it's what we looked at in the previous paper as well. And then, of course, we had our comparison to high-intensity exercise. So that was performed at 70% of VO2 max. And as I said, it was just 20 minutes of continuous cycling. For the BFR groups, we did like a um, BFR cycle. So we had three minutes of inflation, followed by one minute of deflation. Um, and then that, that, that totaled five cycles in, in five cycles in 20 minutes. So... We were, as you guys know, there's a few papers that have said they apply BFR continuously with aerobic exercise. We tried that in some pilot testing, and man, that was brutal. I, no I, you know, I knew when I saw I, this that it's 20 minutes. Yeah. It had to be interval. Yeah. yeah. So I, I honestly, I think I made it to minute seven and a half, and like I pretty much about to fall off the bike. 
So yeah. um, we, we decided to go with some cycles. Um, so, so it was about yeah, f- five cycles with three minutes of inflation, one minute. Did you see it was um, just as hard at 40%? Because I don't know if we've ever cycled that low when we've done it. <clears throat> um, it felt a bit easier, but still, I think, you know, no more than 10 minutes, I was going to be doing straight with, with 40% yeah. even. Like, it was yeah. it's pretty brutal. That might just be me. There may be people out there who can do it. But and Luke, your bike, was it an upright bike or was it recumbent? Upright bike. Upright? Okay. And you, yeah. Luke, you, you tested that. You, you measured LOP in the position of exercise, right? Yeah, we did. We measured LOP with them pretty much on the bike, just with the cuffs on. Um, yeah, that, we was, used. So that would that would certainly yeah that forty percent. Yeah, so that, that yeah. would raise the forty percent compared to if we did it say supine. Yeah, um, yeah. And then um, with that, one of uh, one of Ben's questions that he was wondering was why not measure supine? What, why did you guys choose? Because you, you did that in your ACL paper as well. Um, you, you measure them in a position on, on the leg press, right? Yeah, correct. It's a good question. So the reason we did that was based off one of the studies during my PhD, where we found that body position affected the occlusion pressure. So yeah. as every researcher's uh, worst nightmare happened, and as we were doing the study, Seal Jacks et al. published <laughs> the same paper as we were doing yeah. ours. Exactly. So, so they, yeah, they, they essentially showed first that LOP was higher in a seated position compared to a supine position. Um, and we'd looked at seated, sorry, supine seated and upright. Um, and based on that, we could, we saw like, you know, a considerable difference in LOP between like supine and standing. So yeah. we kind of said from that, if we want to be accurate in prescribing pressure from like a safety and effectiveness point of view, that we were going to do it in the body position for exercise. Um, no. Now, without getting too far off topic here, mm-hmm. um, with that just being the single exercise, probably okay to do that. But what do you think if you're going to do, if you would do like in the clinic, right? Because we would do multiple exercises in varying limb or varying body positions. Um, I think the one thing that that came out of your paper that you did on different body positions, um, showing differences in limb occlusion pressures. And Seal Jack's paper really showed the same thing that I would say the concern is going to be if you're going to do it in the position, whether it's like a squatting position, you're going to do it standing. But then if you would have them do a straight leg raise, you, you potentially could put that individual at full occlusion. And that's the big concern um, that I always tell people when that question comes up. What do, what do you think about that? Yes, it's a great question. So I suppose that was kind of the rationale for the, the kind of conclusions that came out of the study. We said that if you measured someone standing and they did a horizontal leg press, there's a chance of over occluding them. Yep. Um, so I think, like clinically, you know, in, in our when we had our ACL patients in that previous study, um, obviously there's not a lot of time. So I would say that if you get one measurement early on at the beginning of the session, just to stick with that for the rest of the session. But typically, yeah. that, I know that's how yeah. other people are doing it. So I would maybe get it in. I know some individuals at different clinics who are doing it in, in supine and then using that even for standing exercises because they're more concerned with ensuring that they get an effective stimulus but not over-occluding. They're more concerned with not over-occluding than maybe slightly under-occluding, especially in those like early post-op phases. So a lot of yeah. individuals just do supine and then use that LLP value for the rest of the session. And then um, just this last thing was uh, the, the other thing I point out too was both your paper and... Um, the Seal Jacks paper, they were just acute studies. They were literally 
we measure this and we see a difference in body positions versus carrying out the training program in those, you know, across pressures in different positions, right? So we don't truly know if we just measured in supine, are they truly underdosed if we do a squatting exercise or something along those lines? Um, the one thing that we do know is when we do do it in supine, it seems to be an effective enough stimulus at 80% limb occlusion pressure to get the carryover we need. Yeah, absolutely. We see that for, for, for the papers out there now. Um, and, you know, as you said, it's an acute study. So they were just, you know, those conclusions we made are that this potentially could have an effect over a training program. Yep. We see we see 80% limb occlusion pressure measured in supine being effective. You know, we measured it with them horizontal and it was effective in our ACL study. Um, so, yeah, I think one, I think the important thing really for the training studies in LLP, the underlying thing is that we just measure and get every session, as we say. Yeah. Um, and that's why devices that can do that automatically for you quickly, you know, in under a minute are ideal, especially in a clinical setting. And I don't know if we spoke about this before, guys, but we, we haven't published this data yet. I'm going to have to try and dig that out. But over the course of our um, ACL study, the eight weeks, we saw basically a gradual increase in LLP across the study, which makes sense because we saw hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. So, again, yep. just, just, just supporting that rationale for measuring every time. When I get it in standing, man, it it's crazy how much yeah. harder and higher it is. I mean, I did some split squats the other day. I was like, Jesus, I think I want to do this supine because yeah, man, it's, my, it's my way LP different. was in it's, the high two hundreds. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it just it, it it it's for me. It's really high and becomes whenever I've tried to measure it in standing and do like bilateral squatting exercise, it's unbearable. Even just like a body weight sometimes. Yeah. I find it really, really difficult. I just don't think clinically it would be would be hard to do that. But, you know, we were just trying to reiterate the importance of, you know, controlling that acoustic stimulus as best as we possibly can. Sure. So yep. we were talking about a pain study. I forgot where we are now. Yeah. We, yeah uh, I think we were talking about the, yeah, the different pressures, um, 40 and 80, yeah. Freaking Ben's not even on the call and he sidetracked us with his question. <laughs> I was just wanting yeah. Johnny to try to pronounce the – into cannabinoid thing that y'all <laughs> studied. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't ever get that right, man. Can I? Can we just? It's call the it pie? two I mean... arachnophobia gene or something. <laughs> is all I can tell. Two yeah. AG. I don't think I've ever said it out loud in call. I don't know. I don't I'm know. If you should ever try. It yeah. sounds. I don't know what it is. It's terrible. So okay, four conditions: low pressure, forty percent; high pressure, eighty percent. Interval bike, which I think is, if you're going to do bike, probably more than steady state, especially with newbies. I, I think the interval protocol is the best way to go because you don't make your people freaking bonk and, and pass out. A high intensity um, group as well and a low intensity. Yep. Right. Okay. Yeah, that, that's where we were up to. And, and, and the BFR was was intermittent. You know, they, they, they cycled continuously for 20 minutes. We just kind of inflated and deflated the cuff in those cycles. So they didn't stop and have a rest period. Um, but yeah, so we did that, um, and then we kind of replicated our previous study where we measured pressure pain thresholds. So as our marker of pain sensitivity using a mechanical handheld ergometer. So we did that pre-exercise and then post-exercise. And then we also took our venous blood samples again, so we could look at our um, pain markers. And then we, we, we took that plasma, froze it down and analyzed it at a later date. Um, so in a nutshell, what we found essentially is with the, with the low intensity aerobic exercise group, so 40% VO2 max with no, um, no BFR, there essentially wasn't any changes in pressure pain thresholds. Um, and when you look at some of the 
exercise-induced hypoalgesia literature that exists out there um, on aerobic exercise. There's a bit of a mixed bag of findings, but there's, for example, a Hoffman paper found that there's no change uh, in sensitivity to pain when exercising at 50% VO2 max. Um, and then a Norgal et al. meta-analysis showed that basically the higher the intensity, the larger the effect, and the, the actual in studies that did report a change with low intensity aerobic exercise, pain sensitivity did a really small effect. So um, basically the consensus from the general aerobic literature is that anything below 55, 50% VO2 max doesn't really have an effect on pain. So we, we, we saw that within our, within our study as well, which is nice. But obviously the part we're most interested in is that when, when we had performed that same exercise, but with blood flow restriction, we saw an increase in, in pressure pain thresholds um in the legs now obviously the difference between this paper and the previous study is we did bilateral bfr in this because they were cycling whereas in the resistance exercise paper we were just exercising uh they're just doing leg press with one lower limb um so essentially to, to try to summarize it as simple as possible when we found that when we added the bfr to low intensity aerobic exercise um it causes hypologies in the exercise and limbs and the magnitude of that change with BFR applied at 40% limb occlusion pressure was comparable to high intensity exercise. And then what we also saw similar to the previous paper is that we got um, remote hypoalgesia as well in different areas of the body. So it's just kind of this, this, the second time we found systemic hypoalgesia with, with the BFR exercise, which is nice as well. Did you do 24 hour? I forgot to look at that. Uh, this paper, we didn't do 24 hours, no. Okay. Um, yeah, we did in the previous resistance exercise study. Um, that's something we're going to potentially be looking at in the near future, because I think, you know, that, that was a particularly interesting finding previously because, you know, exercise-induced hypoalgesia typically lasts for 45 minutes to an hour. I'm not, right. at least I'm not aware of any evidence that of it lasting longer. Um, and it'd be really interesting to see if we can, A, replicate the resistance exercise findings again, and B, if aerobic exercise has the same impact as well. Yeah. Anecdotally, you know, I've had some patients come back the next day and said they still felt like they had less pain. I mean, you never know with pain ratings, but, but yeah. So, and 80% a better effect than 40% as well. So high pressure. Yeah, exactly. And that, that replicated what we saw with the resistance exercise as well. So okay. a higher pressure resulted in greater um, reduction sensitivity to a painful stimulus. So, I mean, that's now two, two different data sets that have, that have shown yeah. us. So, it's really kind of, to me, it's pointing to the fact that there's some effect of pressure. I don't know how yet or what, but it's obviously having some kind of an impact on the magnitude of this effect. Um, and it kind of makes sense as well when you look at some of the existing papers out there. So not just our own ACR work, but to use that as an example, because obviously I, I know that pretty well. We were seeing that acutely um, in the training study that, um, and over time, that 80% LLP BFR protocol was resulting in greater reduction in pain in a high intensity exercise group. So it kind of what we found in these acute studies in the healthy populations is kind of reflecting what we saw in an ACL patient population, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. And I, th I think I have this right, Luke. You, I mean, the magnitude of the endogenous opioid release or beta endorphin was, was greater in your high pressure group than in the other two groups, was it not? You mean for this particular study? For this or study, the, yeah. I think it was comparable between the both the BFR exercise groups. Just pulling up the table here now. It, I, I think it was. It was. It was. Beta endorphins were comparable, um, but uh, the uh, I think the endogenous opiates 
um, were greater in, in the high endocannabinoids. Or yeah, the endocannabinoids yeah. were higher. Yeah, that was higher in that in, high intensity cycling group, right? It was no, yeah, substantially that, that higher. Ended BF, that in the BFR group at high pressure. Both the high pressure and um, the 70% VO2 max group were higher than low intensity and uh, 40% LOP. Yeah, so that, that the, the blood findings were particularly interesting because I'm sure you can see that we, we found something like completely opposite to what we hypothesized because that first that first resistance exercise paper was we basically found beta endorphin increased. There was a big spike in with both BFR conditions and no real change in the other exercise conditions. And then we, we didn't see the endocannabinoid marker we chose to AG without saying that the full word. And um, there was no change in that whatsoever. So we hypothesized that, you know, maybe beta endorphin within the opioid system is a big driver of what we're seeing with BFR or, or at least a contributor. And then obviously, as you guys know from this paper, when we did it, we actually saw changes in 2AG as well with um, BFR exercise. And as Kyle pointed out, the biggest change in that marker was with the high intensity exercise group. So what's really interesting here, and, you know, I was thinking about how we can write this paper and how we explain the findings, you know, it's why, why is resistance exercise with BFR led to a big spike in an opioid and not an endocannabinoid whereas when we've done aerobic exercise with bfr it's led to a spike in both um and if you look at some of the existing aerobic exercise literature some non-bfr related stuff now there's evidence to suggest that like, like well a the type of exercise can influence what type of endogenous pain inhibition system you activate but also the intensity and the duration and if you compare those two studies, you know, the first study we did, what, five to six minutes of an acute resistance exercise protocol versus 20 minutes of cycling here. Um, so that could be potentially why we've we've seen different changes in blood markers in some respect. Yeah. Much, much longer duration of, of hypoxia, for sure. Yeah. But and I think... so. It, sorry, John. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I, you know, initially we were looking, beta endorphin just made total sense too, because it seemed to be driven by lactate um, and, and lactate's pretty easy to, to make happen when we, when we do BFR. Uh, is it, so I don't know the uh, 2AG, I mean, do we know kind of like what upregulates it? Is, is there this conditioned kind of response from just the tourniquet itself or the pain? Potentially, yeah. Potentially, yeah. I mean, it's, it's difficult because obviously we're just just measuring something in the blood doesn't necessarily mean cause and effect. But mm -hmm. it's 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 interesting to see that. And I think, look, we're, we're, as you guys are aware, we're, we're doing a couple of follow up studies here now to really dig into the mechanisms a bit deeper. But I think one thing we're going to do depend, you know, no matter which mechanisms we're looking at, we're going to keep repeating these blood markers um, if we have enough money to do that, so we can really get a, a bit of an idea across across a. a a group of studies and and then try and figure out exactly what you know, what parameters of exercise that the BFR exercise might be influencing this so there's yeah. an argument for doing a bigger range of pressures there's an argument for doing different intensities or different low intensities of exercise with the same pressure and trying to tease out what exactly about the protocol may be eliciting either opioid or endocannabinoid mediated mechanism it's pretty cool from a uh, athletes kind of perspective as well because I, I think you know a lot of the teams we work with you know they, they have their players do BFR after the games um, or after practice to, to try and whatever recovery or maybe there's some analgesia but it's it's much easier to do intervals on a bike I would think especially if you're pretty smoked after a game versus go get on a leg press or something like that 
and if and if we can say that this potentially spikes these two systems of pain relief, uh, I think that's pretty powerful. Yeah, agreed. And I think if you look at the magnitude of, you know, I think it's important to note that we've only really we've only measured pain sensitivity with one type of noxious stimulus. So I suppose you know the next step would be to include like a battery of tests for that to get a better picture. But like a car battery, yeah. like you make them like actually. <laughs> Like yeah, really hurt them, I think, like shock them. Yeah, I think we struggle getting that through ethics, but yeah. but yeah, we can give that a go. But I think you know what is important here because I've already had a few questions from people via email just to like you know resistance or aerobic. What would you what would you do? What would you recommend to reduce pain with BFR? I think actually, if you look at like the magnitude of of the decrease in pain sensitivity they're actually quite comparable i think what you said then johnny is right so it's what's more applicable to the situation you're in if you've got someone really early like post-surgery like post-acl surgery and a really swollen aggravated knee then maybe doing low intensity cycling might be easier mm -hmm. as long as they've got the range of motion to do it so but for me the most important like well, the most interesting outcome from this and conclusion was that you know we showed that by doing the exact same exercise, but with BFR, we had this effect not only in the exercise and limbs, but also systemically. Mm -hmm. And to dig into the data a little bit deeper, in this study, we found that low pressure BFR, of, BFR of 40% uh, limb occlusion pressure didn't really have an effect on these remote areas of the body. So, one, but whereas 80% LOP did. So again, it's another indication that pressure might be really pressure. important for, for this effect because we didn't see 40% have an effect elsewhere in the body, but 80% did. So that was something Jeremy said on our podcast a couple of times ago too, was that, that Jeremy Linicky that, that they had seen that as well in, in their studies, these, these kind of remote reductions in pain, this kind of systemic mm -hmm. effect, if you will. Jeremy for, even said this is the only time he's going to use systemic with BFR. I know. I, I, I backed him into a corner on that one. It was funny. I was like, hey. uh, yeah, but he said, you know, this looks like something that truly has a systemic effect. Yeah. Yeah. When looking at the tri or the, uh, the the upper trap, it was only that high pressure group that had a significant increase. Yeah. Um, yeah. No yeah. other group did. Yeah. Increase. And by the way, I mean, it was a decrease in pain. They tolerated. An yeah. They increase had a higher in increase in pressure that pain we, threshold that we yeah. make that point. Cause it, it gets confusing reading these papers. It keeps saying increasing. And I'm like, okay, but I have to keep reminding myself that we're talking about decreased pain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Increase in pain definitely. pressure threshold. I think that, that whole like systemic effect with, with exercise induced hypoalgesia is quite like I was, to be honest, when I first, started reading around that literature i was quite skeptical but i was really surprised by like the size of the body of evidence around that and what you tend to see when you're doing unilateral exercises that the effects greatest in the exercise and then and then we get it you know in the contralateral limb in remote areas of the body um but a smaller magnitude and that's what we've seen across across these two studies here as well so that's quite nice because it you know it kind of makes us a bit more confident that you know what we're seeing mimics what we would what we should expect to see with exercise induced hypoalgesia by itself and it's really it's really interesting then to think about how you know if bfr's not only having a greater effect in that limb it's causing some kind of local physiological changes there's also some going on systemically as well um you know which which that would suggest that it's some kind of spinal supraspinal involvement that we need to figure out exactly yeah, in going back to your last paper, and, and Jeremy wrote a really nice review pain paper. What he mentioned as well is that that sustained hyperalgesia, you know, 24 hours later, 
didn't correlate to what you saw on the opioid release. So there, there was an opioid upregulation the next day, but the pain was still down. So there, there's probably is this other pathway we're, we're, we're missing. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, that for me, when we were, when that paper, when we found the elevation at 24 hours, that was really surprising because kind of, you know, we, we hypothesized, we, we saw that the, the change in the opioids and beta endorphin mediated the relationship between, you know, the exercise intervention and change in pressure pain threshold. But as you said, there was, they were, they were back to baseline levels of 24 hour post-exercise, which you know, isn't, wasn't surprising. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, everything else we thought might be potential mechanisms, such, such as the discomfort generated during the exercise, we wouldn't expect it to be any discomfort at 24 hours. So again, there was, you know, oh, that's really good clinically. We have no, no real idea how to explain it yet. And right. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to try and figure that out later. One thing I did think is like, oh, is it just because there's some swelling left over? So, you know, obviously we get we get cell swelling with the BFR. And I have considered recently, you know, could that potentially have an influence um, on the pain measurements post-exercise? Because obviously we're using a mechanical pressure stimulus and we're pressing on that area of the muscle that's now become swollen. Could that yeah. potentially influence their their perception of discomfort from that? Um huh. But 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 at 24 hours post exercise, we wouldn't expect there to be any swelling left over. So yeah, know, that's when we thought. Yeah, it's just something. I think that's something that I've thought of myself, which I with Stephen about, and I think it's something we're going to try and measure acutely in upcoming studies as well. But again, saying that, we're we're also seeing uh, changes in pressure pain thresholds in areas of the body that haven't exercised and wouldn't have any cellular swelling around there. So right, like everything, now, multifactorial. Yep. What about um, how long the uh, the endogenous or the beta endorphins remain bound to the receptor? So, it, yeah, so beta endorphins go down, but then what about what is already bound to that mu receptor? How long does it stay bound? And then kind of, I don't know what the half-life is or what have you, could that have some sort of sustained effect as well? I, I, I yeah. don't know. So you wouldn't measure it because it's bound because it's not in the blood anymore. Exactly. So what is left over from what has been produced is already kind of taken up or back down to normal. But then how long of an effect is what is bound to the receptor? How long does that have? Yeah, it's a great question, Zach. And to be honest, the the easy and short answer is I don't know. (laughs) That's something that we're going to have to try and figure out. I'm I'm not aware of any, at least I haven't come across any beta endorphin literature that can give information on the half-life of that i think one thing that i want to do in, in, the, in the next study to really tease out you know the importance of beta endorphin because we've shown twice now that it's it's gone up with exercise so it's obviously it's obviously partly contributing at least um but i think the next step would be to use like a um a beta endorphin antagonist so like something like the uh, naloxone yeah. and inject it and include different trials and then if we see that you know, if we inject a, a beta endorphin antagonist or inhibitor and then we don't see this exercise induced hypothesis of a BFR, then that gives us you know, a whole new look at, um, or a whole new support for, for the role of that. It's kind of like Rasmussen's group using yeah. a rapamycin to prove mTOR. That'd help answer that 24 hour question that Zach had too, then if they did that, because yeah. if you don't have it immediately after, that. you're not going to have it 24 hours later. They, they did yeah. that with rodents. And um, that was one of the remote IPC studies that was done, looking at the effect mm-hmm. of um, on the heart, like cardio, cardiac tissue, yeah. um, 
pretty pretty much with that, Luke. And that's where they found like um, IPC does activate the, these opiate receptors. So literally, you know, just the use of a tourniquet or including blood flow outside of exercise does have an effect on the opiate receptors. Um, you know, but then like it's a matter of a carryover, then what kind of analgesic effect do you get from there? Um, and that was kind of really the premise of Jamie Burr's paper. Um, Which we can roll into. To. So, yeah, so that's the next question. So, Luke, you've, you've really <laughs> eloquently have shown us that BFR with exercise activates the opioid system, the potential endocannabinoids, and you get this pain response from it. So then the question is, do you have to exercise? Can you just use an IPC protocol, which is much easier if you're doing this like on an athlete or early post-op? Um, and there is literature out there pre-total knee, pre, I forgot what it was. I think it was like gallbladder Ball removal. Ball yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. which I had my gallbladder removed years ago. That sucks, man. I wish I would have tried this. Um, it's, they swell you up to do it like, a, <laughs> like they, they put a gas in you and swell you up to take it huh? out and then you get done yeah they got to pump your yeah. trunk all full because to, to have enough room to see in there i guess i don't know i didn't do the surgery kyle and so anyways <laughs> um you get done maybe you'd be, like, maybe, maybe you'd be number one on google uh, yeah why not Johnny? <laughs> but he, he's like man when you get done it's gonna feel like you have an elephant on your chest because of all that pressure and then that that air has to somehow move out of your body. So you you just yeah. fart like a just like a <laughs> madman. I'm just apologizing left and right to the nurses. Like, uh, oh my god, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like, uh, anyways, anyways, if you put the tourniquets on pre those surgeries, it seemed to have a reduction in opioid use as well as pain postoperatively. So that was what I think Jamie was looking at with his IPC paper. Healthy model again. Can you just put someone's hand in a really, it was one degree Celsius ice bath, which I don't, what is that? Like negative 400 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know the metric system or. No, no it's, like it's, it's right around freezing. Like zero. It's around freezing. Is right. it whales, whales. Well, in the zero is 32. That's zero is freezing. Ah, okay. Well, good. Oh good. yeah. There you go. Jesus. Way to make us look stupid, Zach. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> That's why I stayed quiet. Yeah. I didn't know anything. Four, fourfold <laughs> increase Kyle over there. Oh geez. Fourfold. Um, so <laughs> Here, we go. Hand, Here we go. Put their hand in this cold ass water um, and then see how long, how high their pain intensity gets in it. And once they take their hand out, how long it took them to have that pain go away. So they say pain, when their hands in the water and then when they took their hand out they say no pain and they see how long that time was then they did on their arm an ipc protocol um he used delphi's 100 lop so the same 100 uh, occlusion and then put their hand back in the ice water to see did it reduce the pain intensity and how long they had pain and if they use ipc the intensity was still bad but their total time with pain was less and then what he wanted to also look at is because we know with the IPC literature, there's responders and non-responders for athletic performance. And he wanted to see if you had a better pain reduction, does that just mean you're a good responder to IPC? And if you did a time trial test and did IPC before, you would perform better. And what they found was there wasn't correlation between pain as well as performance. So we, we can't say that, but what they can say after this one is, IPC reduces your total time with pain if you're under a painful stimulus. So, 
and that, from a clip. Go in ahead. Jamie's go. paper, Johnny, I believe I have this right. It took longer for the pain to come on. No, it was it took, pretty much about the same. Or it went yeah. away faster. It went away faster. Right. Yep. Yeah. Which so. was, it was interesting how they do it. And I wondered if this was one of the possible limitations was they just did two minutes. They didn't mm -hmm. do it to like max tolerance. It's almost as if they reached a ceiling effect. And there was really only, it was a slight increase in pain. I think it went from, it was around a two on the pain scale at 15 minutes and then went up to basically peaked at around 30 yeah. minutes or um, at uh, it peaked at uh, three or just over three or something like that. And then it just stayed there. So I, I wonder if they would have just left the hand in there until they reached a tolerance, if that wouldn't have conveyed more of a response um, on the um, time it took to uh, get rid of the pain. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah. and so their yeah, total so time of pain was a, a, it was a pretty big response, though. Like their Cohen's was like 1.3 or something. It, it was, it was. Uh, so it was a big response. Yeah, 1.3 yeah. was, was huge. Um, and then, uh, but yeah, I, I just wonder that when I was reading that because they did everybody two minutes and they said like everyone tolerated two minutes. Um, and I know, you know, some of the military stuff is literally cold water is, is, is a beast. And that's really where kind of people quit and decide not to do things anymore. Um, so I wonder if the hand was in cold water for longer than two minutes, or if they did a larger body area um, where the pain and um, kind of the tolerance would have been really tested, if we would have seen a, a greater change. Um, and then on the performance side, what was nice was um, these, these folks were more aerobically trained. I think um, VO2 maxes of the males was at 63 and uh, females was around 55. Um, and there was, I think an 11 second improvement in their five K yeah. time trial cycling time trial, which doesn't necessarily sound like a lot, but for an aerobically trained individual, um, cycling on, on an all out time trial at 11 seconds is pretty huge. Um, Luke, you can, you probably know that like over in Europe, like with the tour de France and stuff like that, man, 11 seconds is, is a massive improvement on the time trial. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but once again, responders and non-responders there too. Yep. Right? Yeah. So that's that's yeah, what's 60, interesting, you know. Sixty-three percent, or um, eight of the thirteen, I think, were considered responders. And right. then what was weird too was like just like you said, you have non-responders, and by like non-responders, it's not like they just only improved like a second or so. No, there was a there was a drop off in yeah. performance. They they got worse. Yeah. Um, in those five, so. I'm sure we say if you're going to do IPC for performance, you, you better practice it first to see yeah. who you're dealing with because you could have a pissed off athlete if they're feeling sluggish for some reason. So what are your, what are your thoughts, Luke, from an IPC protocol versus exercise? Well, just before that, John, I wanted to just go back to something Zach said that I think that I've been thinking about a bit recently with the whole, you know, if, if it had left the hand in a bit longer and just measured kind of, you know, maximal total intensity. And that's something that obviously we haven't done in our two BFR papers so far with pain. We've just looked at pressure pain threshold, which is kind of the point at which a stimulus becomes painful. We haven't looked at pain tolerance and gone above that. And I think that's something that's really important for 
of BFR. And I think one of the ways we talk about using BFR, and I was up, I was up with the UK military there last week um, for you guys doing a doing a train session. And you have one of the things we pardon in the UK. <laughs> you have a military. That was what that's. Uh, I'm pretty certain that's what like. Uh, oh, you talking right about the there. you talking about the Welsh? Yeah. <laughs> the, Brit, the Brits in general. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about? We here, Luke? We, we see our, the Welsh. We see ourselves as a separate nation to the UK, <laughs> <laughs> especially with some of the things, some of the decisions that are made down here. But anyway, we won't get into that. But <laughs> one of the big topics of discussion at the rehab centre was, you know, this idea of this acute hypoalgesia and how it potentially could be used to allow greater loading. So we, I was talking a bit about if you have someone with a painful tendinopathy and it's kind of going back to um, Karakakis for the first paper where it looked at acute hypoalgesia. It's like, you know, if we can acutely reduce pain, that's great. But that can then, for, you know, for pathologies that really need to be loaded, can that allow them to tolerate more load? And I actually think that's, a, that's an important angle on, on the BFR and hypoalgesia that we haven't looked at in our two studies. So it's like, okay, great. If, if it increases pain thresholds, it increases, you know, or... Saying I'll go back to this increase decrease, but basically, if it takes, if they don't, a stimulus doesn't become painful for a little bit longer, but also arguably, does it also increase tolerance of the stimulus as well? Because that's really important. Because if, if not only if pressure pain thresholds didn't change, for example, but how long they could tolerate it after did increase as a result of BFR, then that's also really important as well. If you wanted to do something like, can they then tolerate more load in a rehab setting? That's right. something I just I was thinking of recently and thought that's potentially, you know, we should add that into future studies ourselves and anyone else, any other groups who are doing that. So not only looking at thresholds, but tolerance. I think being able to use this as a means of reducing people's pain clinically, it can be very powerful <clears throat> simply for the fact that sometimes the pain that people are having very early on, like post-op, like once you can tamp that down, it, it just kind of stays gone. It doesn't necessarily pop up. Some of that is just you know, a little bit of fear. There's a lot of different variables kind of factoring into why this person is hurting. And so the ability to do that is a pretty important thing for a clinic setting. And I know, I know I've had experiences, Zach and Johnny, I'm sure have as well, where you're able to actually knock a patient's pain down with kind of a simple little thing and doesn't necessarily return. Um, that's a big win. That patient comes sure. back and that patient tells their friends too. So yeah. yeah, I think the the one thing, you know, we've, we've said it in, in these papers, you know, I'm very quick to write, you know, this could, you know, be used as a, as a pain management tool. And of course it could. And the next big step really is even just repeating these two studies we've done in, in, a, in, a, in a chronic pain population and looking at, is it the same? Now there's evidence from our own ACL stuff and, and other kind of clinical populations that have been done, the knee aways, anterior knee pain. You know, there's a lot of evidence so far in, in the early stages to suggest that, yes, it will. But it's having a look at this, this acute response, because I'm sure you guys are well aware. Sometimes exercise in, in chronic pain populations gives them hyperalgesia. So it's like, you know, looking at different types of chronic pain populations and trying to see, you know, which ones may benefit the most from it. And potentially there's some guys out there, just like you get like responders, non-responders, right? We see potentially there's some people out there who wouldn't benefit from BFR on them. But that's where looking at this from a programming perspective, you know, they put out in the core caucus paper, maybe do BFR first um, in your treatment progressions, if you're going to potentially have this, this hypoalgesia for, for a while afterwards. 
yeah, I think just uh, it's it's really exciting because we're at like such an early stage of this. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's nice that we have the, these two data sets now from our stuff out of our lab, you know, looking at potential mechanisms, but there's so little we understand about it. And like, you know, it's like, I think there's a good bit of evidence now to suggest the pressure's influencing it. So, you know, it's then what you were saying when we, when we move on to Jamie Bird's paper, you know, can we, do you need exercise? Do you, yeah. can you just get away with just, just pressure as well? So yeah. I think that's. Well, this is, you know, it's what's awesome. It's kind of like with BFR in general, you know, it's like, okay, yes, it beats low load. It does this for strength and hypertrophy. And then you muscle fizz guys came in and explained all the mechanisms, you know, we don't know them all, but it's like, well, it does this, it does this, it does this. So this makes sense. And now we've got from a pain perspective, we kept seeing reduction in pain, reduction in pain. And now it's like, okay, these are the mechanisms behind it because that's pain is important for our insurance payers. And if we're showing that we're objectively improving the limb, but also reducing pain and potential opioids, that, that's a huge, huge clinical win. Definitely. I think, you know, you know there's, there's also the question I've been asked of, you know, could this potentially reduce a patient or an athlete's reliance on, on taking pain medication? And I know, Johnny, we spoke about this in the past. You know, that, that would be also be huge as well. If, that mm-hmm. could, if you, you could use BFR and even more so if you could have a patient in a bed, you know, who can't do any kind of exercise and we just put a cuff on and perform IPC, you know, if that potentially can modulate their pain, then that would be, you know, that would be pretty amazing. Yeah. Speaking of military, are, are you involved with Pete Ladlow's study, the, that big multi-center they're doing, Luke? I'm not involved in the study itself, but I was up there um, last week just uh, doing some BFR to train with them and discussing the ideas. But um, okay. yeah, they're, they're planning a really big study and we had a, we had a good chat about some other, um, potential avenues for research as well. So I think um, cool. it'd be really nice to see some more BFR research coming out of there, hopefully. Yeah. Awesome. Well, any last thoughts, you guys, on analgesia, Luke's paper, IPC? You know, the, the one thing I was going to say that was different between the Jamie Burr IPC paper and the two surgical, the total knee and the gallbladder surgery was the total knee papers were done in the lower extremity and Jamie did his in the upper extremity. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes you wonder, you know, maybe was it, they both um, were at full occlusion or they all were at full occlusion. Um, but it makes you wonder, is there a volume of blood flow that's being occluded um, or the amount of tissue that is hypoxic? Yeah. Um, does that have a role in conveying the IPC response? The gallbladder one was lower extremity as well. I yeah. believe so. Yeah, it was. It was, it was yeah. But you know, what, the interesting thing about both of those papers um, was then the gallbladder one, they did um, like partial exsanguination before they applied the tourniquet in the, in the lower, in the total knee, they fully exsanguinated the limb before they ever did the IPC. So, you know, I think you have to kind of wonder like, well, if you had actually allowed the limb to reperfuse for that five minutes and then done the exsanguination, um, what would the response have been? Would that have mediated it in some way? So I think mean, there's a, there's some pretty big limitations to both those IPC surgical yeah. papers from from that perspective. Uh, I mean, yeah. you know, that's one of the common things in all the IPC stuff is this kind of one to one ratio, yep. inflate deflate. So um, I think there's a lot of space there for anybody that's listening that wants to do a study and look at pain and IPC <laughs> postoperatively, there's, there's some room for sure. You heard him say he needs the money, <laughs> man. He needs money, honey. Oh. This happen. And, and then Kyle with that too, was they only did one cycle. Correct. Um, yeah. Right. So versus all there's the a lot other of space I- there. 
Yeah, a lot of the uh, the, the Salvador um, systematic review that was basically like we need you need more than one cycle to at least from the performance or to have the effect. Um, you know, and then three seemed to have the best, and that's what you know we've decided to go with. But yeah, yeah, I suppose that kind of highlights two key things really that you know in the BFR and pain research moving forward that we need to identify. It's a the time course response, you know. Looking back at 24 hours again, is it longer than 24 hours? It could be. We didn't look any, we didn't measure any further. So it could be 48 hours for all we know. Um, and then it's also what's the minimal effective dose? How little can we get away with in, in people who are really debilitated or really early post-op as well? Mm-hmm. So yeah, lots to be done. Well, can we just sum up basically kind of like what we covered like a little bit? Because I think it was a little bit more jumbled than sometimes always we weren't real linear with our discussions uh, in, in particular um if we could kind of sum up maybe what luke and and your studies have shown regarding magnitude of pain reduction and what matters beta endorphin 2ag that kind of thing yeah sure put that on you, luke, to do that. That, yeah. yeah sure so essentially <clears throat> we've shown now for the second time that adding blood flow restriction to a form of low intensity exercise increases um, hypoalgesia effect. And actually in this particular aerobic study, just performing the low intensity exercise alone was not enough to alter pain sensitivity. But when we perform BFR during the cycling and inflating and deflating the cuff over 20 minutes, we were able to have a positive effect on pain sensitivity and reduce sensitivity to an oxygen stimulus. We also found that again, for the second time, that there was a greater effect in the exercise and limbs with a higher percentage of LOP used during exercise. So suggesting that the pressure itself is having some kind of an impact. And then we also found in this study that beta endorphin increased with both the BFR exercise conditions and also so did 2AG and endocannabinoid as well. So kind of second bit of evidence showing beta endorphins changing as a result of BFR exercise, and this might be having an influence on pain. Beautiful. And the 2AG seems like, yeah, I did. I wanted to ask one more question because I, I, th- I think we hit it, but maybe not um, thoroughly um, only because it's kind of a question in my head, but it seems as though the duration of the exercise might be kind of this mediator for, for 2AG. Yeah, potentially. So the, the available non-BFR literature out there suggests that so type of exercise, the intensity and the duration by altering these parameters, you can elicit either um, opioid or endocannabinoid mediated um, hypoalgesia. <clears throat> so even using the same form of exercise, so say we just picked resistance as an example, yeah. the, the intensity and duration of that same exercise can elicit either opioid or endocannabinoid mediated hypoalgesia. So it's really interesting because, you know, <clears throat> even in that literature that's been going on for, you know, 20, 25, 30 years, they still don't really know exactly, you know, what's the optimal or what's what type of exercise parameters are listed either. But it's clear there is a difference. Yeah. Cool. Okay, I'm good now. <laughs> ben, Ben, do you have any questions? Oh, I Ben, ben that's, that's, uh, are you there? That's right. <laughs> Texas Ben's got a question about Keeley from Ted Lasso. Um, <laughs> Ben's just. I, I've, I've got this feeling that Ben's just in the shadows, just just watching his questions unfold without taking part. He's the Wizard <laughs> of Oz. He's behind the curtain. Well, cool, Luke. 
Thanks for another great paper. I'll also point out that you also have a, a review paper on BFR's use in space. Um, if anyone doesn't know, Luke is like secretly wants to be an astronaut. Is that what y'all call them in England, astronauts as well? You have a, a weird term, like a astro, astromate. How do you how, um, how do you pronounce it? Is there a weird way? <laughs> we pronounce it the correct way, just like football. But yeah, um, astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, it's a it's man. You guys really do a great job of just summing up how BFR works. So yeah. anyone that that man, it's mechanistically spot on. Kyle Hackney and Stephen were also on it as well. So three three strong minds at it. So that's that's another good one to check out not only for applications in space, but also understanding just how BFR works. So Luke, any other projects you want to talk about before we break off? I think, uh, no, I think the, the key thing really, I suppose, is just that, you know, to keep going with this stuff, we need, we got yeah. so many questions to answer as, as we've all, as we've just pointed out, I think we've come out of the podcast with more questions than we came in, but, um, you know, it's now replicating this stuff in, in chronic pain populations uh, and also trying to op optimize it as well. Awesome, man. Thanks for your time, brother. Go go play some football now. We know you got a big game tonight. So. Practice? We're talking about practice, Luke? Practice. Training, yeah. <laughs> yeah, training. Come on. On the pitch, You've got to train to get to number one on Google. Because what I didn't tell you at the beginning of the podcast, so I didn't have to take take stick for it, or, or thing is I've also Googled my take name. Stick. And I've come and I've take, got, yeah, wait, I've got take a stick. <laughs> take stick. <laughs> <laughs> Where you at? I've got there's a baseball player above me called a baseball famous baseball player called Luke Hughes. I never heard of before. Did he have a strong skull? Is he still alive? <laughs> yeah, strong skull. Yeah. I've never heard of Luke Hughes, the baseball player. Cool, man. Well, see, is he above you? He took you out. Yeah, he's where no, I'm I'm so far down. I'm on like page three, Johnny. I'm nowhere. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Not as good as you. We got we gotta get your your following going, man. People so. haven't been clicking on that weird biopic of yours, Luke. Oh, all, my, all my pictures are weird I'm in front of the camera and it, it goes it goes down badly all right fellas thanks thanks You're luke right. appreciate it as always ready to have you on when the next paper comes out thanks luke thanks guys thanks, be fun, as always thanks for listening to the owens recovery science podcast owens recovery science is a single source for pts ot's atc's dc's MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.